Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan, hematologist, medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I have the pleasure of hosting Tom Harari. Tom Harari is a serial entrepreneur, a writer who talks about life, about finance, about business, about self-improvement, about a lot of things. He has an, he has an MBA from MIT, and um, he actually has a personal uh, uh, letter, a newsletter that uh, it it comes out to his subscribers every Saturday. You can find this at tomharari.co.co. I got to know Tom through a tweet that he it is currently pinned on his profile at Tom Harari, his Twitter handle. And he wrote that tweet on March 25th, 2023, when he turned 38, and he talked about 38 lessons that he would have told his 18-year-old self about. I read this, um, basically, Twitter thread several times, and I was literally amazed by the life lessons that he was able to share with us and the level of maturity that I was able to garner from reading these tweets. Um, I can say that uh, he is one of the few people that I really enjoy every single tweet he has. I enjoy following him, and I really feel everybody should be following Tom Harari. So I asked Tom to come on the show on Healthcare Unfiltered and talk about these life lessons. What are these? How did he actually learn about all of these life lessons? Tell us the stories behind the tweets. This is a podcast this that you don't want to miss. This is a podcast that you are going to listen to more than once. In fact, if you are already listening to it, you started on the right path. Couldn't be happier to host Tom Harari on Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to have him on the show. Before I air the podcast that we taped, I would like to plug the show. Make sure you find the show anywhere you consume podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. Don't forget to refer your friends and colleagues to the show. And you can watch all of these podcast episodes, by the way, on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can always let me know what you think I'm doing and propose any ideas or thoughts by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Also, visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It is the story about the three first roundup litigation trials against Monsanto, all of which were lost by Monsanto, and I had the honor of serving as the expert witness on behalf of medical oncology for the patients that sued Monsanto in the first three trials. So this is the story about the patients and the trials that took place. Check it out and you can buy it and order it any place you actually get books. If you want the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt, you just let me know and I will mail that to you. Folks, without further ado, Tom Harari on Healthcare Unfiltered. Okay, well, here we are, Tom. We are on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, I'm really, really excited and very uh, truly uh, humbled that you uh, have come on my podcast because I don't know if you know this, but you have a pinned tweet that has been viewed 2.3 million times. 
So uh, I've never had anybody on my podcast who had anything that was viewed 2.3 million times. So I am like, I'm with a celebrity right now. Well, you be, you're an influencer right now. Yeah, I did not set out to be an influencer. Uh, I think it's 2.5 million. Um, is it? It might be. Um, it is the pinned tweet. Yeah, that one it's... that one went viral, but it wasn't my first one to go viral. So it was my third one to go viral, but the others did not perform as well as that. But the the reality is that that wasn't my intention. My intention was to share my thoughts. Uh, my intention was to build up a small little uh, following online. Um, I don't try to go viral, uh, but this is the nature of social media: is you don't know who's going to resonate with your message at what time, and I still have no idea how. Bill Ackman ended up seeing my tweet, but I'm pretty confident him seeing it and then retweeting it was the reason that it went viral. So, well, it's um, that's how I got to actually know you, and okay. I I've been following you since then. I enjoy actually your thoughtful tweets, to be honest. But I actually got I to know because I do follow Bill Ackman, and uh, I got to see uh, his retweet. And um, but I, I want to start, uh, this is the story of how we met, but I yeah. want to start by a little bit of introduction about you, because at least in your bio, you say you're a serial entrepreneur and you're interested in finance and business. Tell us a little bit about you and, and um, you know, what do you mean by serial entrepreneur? Aren't you a little bit too young to be serial entrepreneur? So I've been starting and mostly failing at companies since I was 18 years old. Uh, I'm not joking. Um, and any time that I've had brief periods where I've worked a W two job, it was mostly me licking my wounds and just trying to get back on my feet. Um, and so it, it was sort of like in my twenties, one after another of just these really bad ideas or good ideas but bad circumstances. Like for instance, I opened up a real estate and mortgage company right before the uh, two thousand eight global financial crisis. So anyway, long story short, I've been at this for a while, um, probably about like twelve years total, ten years of doing startups. Uh, when I say startups, I mean that in the traditional sense of going to Silicon Valley, uh, raising venture capital uh, and that whole thing. So my most, I shouldn't say my most previous, the, the company before this most recent one was the one that I'd spent the longest time building. I spent about six years building that company. It's a company called Cleanly. We went through Y Combinator, which if your listeners don't know, is an, uh, an accelerator for startups in Silicon Valley. It's the most Famous one, arguably the most prestigious one, whatever that means. Airbnb, Reddit, Dropbox, all these household names came from Y Combinator. And so getting accepted into that and getting funding from Y Combinator at the time seemed like a very big seal of approval to us, like we had made it. Um, but the the long story short is you still have to build a viable company. And that company checked off a lot of boxes. People needed it. You know, We had good, strong, organic growth, good word of mouth. Uh, but we couldn't turn a profit for the life of us. I mean, it was just bleeding money every single month. I was able to take it through a merger a month before COVID hit New York City. We were a New York City-based company, um, which basically saved the company. And I stepped aside as CEO. We brought in a professional CEO, someone who has a tremendous amount of experience managing like large publicly traded companies. And he's done a phenomenal job. I moved up to Massachusetts with my wife and my daughter met a family friend who was going through Y Combinator as well with his company, though in a very different space. It was an electric aviation company, hardware. And I joined them as the first non-engineer on the team and did it all over again, hiring, raising money. We raised about $30 million total wow. um, while I was there. And after a year and a half, I just started to get really burned out. 
And it was the first time that I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, is this really what I want to keep doing? You know, my daughter's two and a half years old now. Uh, I'm not spending time with her. I'm traveling all over the world. I was in Nice meeting with uh, government officials over there, explaining to them our technology and doing FaceTime with my daughter. And so in December of 22, I said to my wife, I think I need a break. I'm not sure for how long. I don't exactly know what the next chapter is going to be, but I know I want to write. This is what I'm passionate about. I think I'm a decent writer. And so this is what I want to do. And so December 22 was when I kind of made this shift to being a writer. And it still feels weird saying that. Um, but I've been tweeting every single day, writing on LinkedIn every single day, uh, and publishing a newsletter once a week, every Saturday. I just sent out my 20th issue. And along the way, you sort of meet other people who are creators. Things tend to go viral if they you know hit certain check marks. But I'm still learning this whole new world, which is very different from what I used to do, which was, I was a serial entrepreneur. What do, what do you write about? Like where, and where do people can find your writing? I mean, obviously on Twitter, it's at Tom Harari, H-A-R-A-R-I on LinkedIn, but hmm. do you have like somebody not on Twitter, how can they come across your writings? Sure. So it's tomharari.co is the website and it's mostly just been an email capture form for my newsletter. And then I would send the newsletter every Saturday uh, to the subscribers. We're at 1400 subscribers today. And what do you write about finance mainly? And not just. So I, I talk about the intersection of finance, but I pull in also history. I talk about media and creation. So it's kind of different arrays of topics that I'm personally interested in. And I just go down different rabbit holes and explore things I'm curious about. Well, that's fascinating to me, actually, because it does take a lot of time. And um, and since you're a serial entrepreneur, um, in the next couple of months, I'm going to pitch you something. I can't say it on the show, but I've been thinking about something. And I think <laughs> we may be after, look, we met uh, by chance and who knows? Absolutely. A few couple of months ago, you uh, celebrate your 38th birthday. Don't remind me. Yeah, that's too old. I mean, ancient, geriatric. And you said <laughs> that you had 38 lessons that you'd, you'd tell your 18-year-old self. Yeah. And the yeah. first thing I was thinking, I guess Tom will learn only one lesson before his next birthday, because at 39, he's going to say, I only <laughs> learned one. It's 39. <laughs> but, but it, you know, it really intrigued me. And I'm like, you know, let me just read what 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 he wrote. And you you really hit the spot in so many of them. Mm. Uh, some of them things that uh, we think about and we may not have the, uh, it's healthcare unfiltered. I can say we may not have the balls to actually um, admit those. And I want to go through some of them and just That's talk cool. through them because there are story behind them. And I've always yeah. said healthcare unfiltered is about stories. And, and people want to know the story behind the person. And I know that you're, you know, you say it a little bit in jest about, you know, there will be only one more lesson. But I think if each of us could learn one true lesson every single year, what a blessing, right? So much wisdom. If you can even just add one new lesson, people go years without doing any self-reflection and not really thinking about why do we make these decisions? Why did I get myself into this, you know, part of my life? Did I really want to be a lawyer, even though I went to law school? Like, there's all these things uh, that we come across. And if we could only learn just even one lesson every year, I think all of us would be better off for it. Agreed. And I think it's not only that. It's about admitting that we are on a learning journey, but also um, having the courage to make a change. I think what you've done in December 22 required a lot of courage. I mean... 
you know, being a writer or a blogger or a newsletter, you may eventually make a lot of money. Who knows? Yeah, that's uh, not the point. Yeah. Right. I mean, you may, though. I mean, hopefully you will and all of that. But the reality is you definitely made some financial trade-offs because you're 100%. going from, you know, making some money, whatever that some money is, to suddenly nothing and trying to build from scratch. So right. uh, we'll go over this. But, uh, you know, the, the first lesson that you talked about, you said believe in yourself 100% of the time. Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, um, what what does that really mean? And and what lesson, how did you, I mean, is this being cocky? I think it's quite the opposite. So I'm naturally an introverted person. Um, I think I, I came into my early 20s um, not really believing in myself for the most part. But then whenever I would come to a decision point of whether I had to take a risk and to bet on myself, I don't know if it was just my own ignorance or whether it was just an attitude of, you know, I'm willing to jump off this cliff and see how deep the water is. I always ended up betting on myself. And so every time I would fall back into this pattern of self-doubt, insecurity, uh, you know, people telling you you didn't come from the right school or you don't have the right pedigree or you don't have the right background, you don't have the right experience. Every single time I would look at myself in the mirror and say, I don't really think that I have what it takes, but I got to try anyway. And it served me well. And the times that I regret are the times that I let that inner critic, so to speak, take over. Uh, and so much of our decision-making comes down to our self-talk and how we view the world comes down to that self-talk. So that's where that one started with. And I wanted to lead with it because every single time in my life that things have gone well, it's because I took a bet on myself. And other times, you know, I can usually point back to, I let insecurity and fear take over. Now that that leads into the second one, which I find pretty interesting because if you believe in yourself, you're willing to take risk. Hmm. And literally your second lesson was take much more risk than you think is sane. I got to tell you, th this really resonates with me because I know I'm risk averse. Hmm. Like we all know ourselves, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think we if you have enough EQ, you know where you stand. Yep. So I always say, if you're risk averse, you're like the you know biggest victim to all of the insurance companies in the world. They <laughs> smell that. And, and I'm like, you know what? I know it and I'm fine with it. And, I'm and that's like, the thing, you, you know it. Right. I know you have the like self-reflection to know that you are. And I have friends that are, and they've, you know, looked at me in my twenties when they were going on the traditional corporate path. And they would say, I don't know how you do this. You know, I could never. Right. And it's arguably some of them are better off financially at this point. Now that we're sort of in our mid to late thirties. Um, but it's the point is to know yourself. And so if you are being risk averse, but it's coming from a place of like unhealthy fear and insecurity, then that's not good. Right. And I think that people uh, probably overestimate how much risk there really is when they're in their early 20s. Like, for example, I didn't realize how much free time I had before I had a child. Right. And like you can relate to this. You have an infinite amount of time to do and experiment whatever you want. But we don't look at it that way. Right. When we're in our 20s, we think like time is running out and well, I'll always have a little bit more time. And you just waste years and, and you know, months and years. And so if people are real with themselves and say, okay, I have this insecurity, I have this fear, I have this doubt about the risks involved with trying a new venture, with trying something that's a little bit different from uh, what society wants them to do, uh, maybe traveling to different parts of the world, um, you realize like the risk is not that large 
And it does actually get more difficult as you get older, once you start taking on more responsibilities and you're responsible for other human beings. You know, you mentioned something about insecurity and I think, and I think that's sometimes that leads to the kind of like prevents you from wanting to take that additional risk. You're, you're a little bit, I don't know if it's insecurity or lack of self-confidence. Like you, you may think I want to do this. And I mean, are, are we able as humans to instill self-confidence in ourselves or is it just you're either born self-confident or you're not? I do think that part, you know, I see it now with my daughter. I do think part of it is like that early childhood nature, uh, sorry, nurture from the parents, right. And like the way that they instill confidence as an example. Um, I always like to bring in things from my own life. This is like my Twitter thread writing coming out. Instead of us saying, I'm proud of you to our daughter when she does something good, we're trying to get her in the habit of saying, I'm proud of myself, right? And it's a small distinction, but it's it's an intrinsic self-esteem that you start to build that I think can happen at an early childhood age, like zero to five, um, versus always seeking the approval of others, right? So much of what we do is rooted back into our like seeking approval from our parents, right? And that's where a lot of insecurities and fears and doubts come from. So there, there's that part of it. That being said, I do believe in positive affirmations and all that woo-woo stuff that you know I probably used to laugh at when I was younger. Um, and the exact name of the psychological effect is escaping me right now, um, but it's come. I've come across it so many times that I just know it to be true. And it's basically this Greek uh, tragedy of the sculptor who's sculpting a woman and he so badly wants the sculpture to be real and that eventually Aphrodite helps him and, and makes the statue real. And it's this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If we believe that we have the confidence, if we believe that we can do what we're setting out to do, the results show we actually end up doing better at that thing versus if we have like self-defeatist talk, you know? Yeah, that is, you know, that's a good point about the parents one. Um, I, I I like that a lot. Um, you go on to talk a little bit uh, more personal stuff. Uh, you won't truly grow up until your heart gets broken. That's... Um, I mean, everybody's heart has gotten broken at some point uh, mm-hmm. throughout, the, but not everybody likes to admit it or share it on oh. social media. Did you contemplate um, how much you want to talk about uh, this? Because it also goes... I'm an open say, book. We you'll also break uh, other people's hearts. Sure, sure. So um, the long story short, and I've written about this in other Twitter threads, is when I was 31, I was in the middle of building um, that company, the one that went through Y Combinator, and we had just raised um, a large round of funding. Everything seemed to be going well in my life, right? Everything that I said I wanted when I was 20 was happening. I had the uh, all the glamour. I was being interviewed in uh, all these fancy magazines, raised tens of millions of dollars from institutional investors. Um, but at home, it was a mess, right? I was so focused on the business, not really focused on the relationship, a relationship that had probably deteriorated to the point where we should have broken up several years before. And I tried salvaging it by proposing. What a terrible idea. And so we were about not even a full year into the marriage. And then the whole thing like breaks apart. And Chadi, I'm not kidding. That was the first time in my life, maybe I'm fortunate, knock on wood, that I had my heart broken. So I went through my whole 20s. I dated tons of women. Never once did I have my heart broken, ever. And so I didn't know what it felt like. I didn't know what it felt like to have myself just totally crushed and ripped from the inside out. And it forced me to come to terms with a lot of my my own issues, 
my egoic self, uh, the things that I wanted to believe about myself, about the world. Um, and through that process, and, you know, I went to therapy and, and really did a lot of kind of self-exploration, you really grow up, right? And you, um, maybe you lose a little bit of the rose-colored glasses that you view the world, but I do think it's a healthy part of growing up. And for me, it just took too long, right? I probably should have experienced that earlier, uh, but I'm so glad that I experienced it at some point, because I think if you don't ever have that, um, you're still sort of like the caterpillar in the cocoon. You haven't broken out and really kind of spread your wings, as cheesy as that sounds. But it it looks like this also opened your eyes to the fact that you may have broken other people's hearts. For sure. Uh, and so, you know, whether uh, it was conscious that I was trying to avoid that fear of getting my heart broken or whether just that's how life played out, I was always the one breaking up with people. And I never really had that true empathy to what the other person was dealing with. Like, you know, you say, I understand, you know, you're not happy about this, but the relationship is not working but it sucks. It really, really sucks, you know, and yeah. when you invest so much time into another human being and then the whole thing falls away, you have dreams of what the future might look like, you know, you start imagining your life together. Um, and so both are really important. They're two different sides of the same coin um, for our development as human beings, because I think it, it really brings out a certain level of empathy for who the other person is if you've been on both sides of that. I, I you know, what I, what I probably should have written, and I've heard this said, from someone else. I don't remember who, but he was said, you know, you don't really grow up until you've broken up with someone, you've had your heart broken, uh, you've beaten someone up and then they've beaten you up. You know, like, I don't remember where I read that or where I heard that, but like, that's probably what I should have written also. Yeah. I probably grew up in high school because I got them beaten up a lot. Same. Um, <laughs> drop loser friends without remorse. Is that controversial? No, what's controversial? How do you find loser friends? Isn't it like the eyes of the beholder? Like, I don't know. Like, sometimes is there a, like, there's probably, we all have, I don't know. Tell me, I mean, what's, what's a loser friend? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it probably for each person, it is different. In the environment that I grew up in, um, I, like I said, I didn't have a problem dating. I didn't have a problem being a social creature. I'm naturally introverted, but you know, fortunately I was blessed with, uh, not terrible looks. And so, you know, you're in your early twenties and you get invited to parties and you get invited to more parties and all of a sudden it's a party lifestyle. Right. And I think a lot of people do go through this where they get into their middle to late twenties. You start to get a little exhausted from the party lifestyle and you're no longer sure who are my real friends and who are just kind of my party friends. And I think you, let's say, even if you're not into the party scene and you're just into, let's say video games, you know, which of your friends are actual real friends that care about you, that will be there for you no matter what, um, versus ones that are just like so siloed in this one like niche activity that you do that's also is not productive, right? And so I think each person has to make their own um, kind of judgment call for themselves. But for me, it was very much rooted in that kind of party lifestyle of like, this is just isn't serving me. Uh, these people are only interested in drinking. Um, that's not getting me anywhere. And so, so basically ruthless. when you be say ruthless about them, them. Yeah, like, you, you know, if they call you, stop answering all of this. Uh, has this ever fired back uh, folks that they wanted to hang up, hang out with you and you just uh, stop uh, responding and, and this affected um, business. I mean, I, I think the business now, 
you know, I mean, when you are in the business world and you're trying to raise money and and all of that stuff, I mean, let's face it, you're you know, you 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 are going to have certain uh, people that you interact with, not because they are your friends, uh, sure, but sure. because they are acquaintances, and maybe there's a business relationship, and that leads you to maybe having trips that you exhaust you, or going to late dinners or things like that. I mean. I, I feel like sometimes it's the cost of doing business. Um, uh, uh, so, but these are not the friends you're talking about. These are obviously business uh, relationships. I think when, when the lines are drawn, it's much easier to say like, this yeah. is an acquaintance, this yeah. is a business relationship, yeah. this is transactional. You know, they, this person who, you know, may or may not have uh, something that I'm looking for in a business sense really wants to go to this yeah. uh, loud restaurant where everyone's going to be drinking, fine. Right. You understand what the yeah. trade-offs are, yeah. but it's when the, those lines get blurred that I think, again, it's just about self-reflection. Who is this person in my life? I always say be, someone being in your life is a privilege. And I think a lot of people don't look at it that way. They just yeah. kind of, they see their time as like, you know, I could just throw my time here and there, wherever, but time, unlike money is not fungible. An hour today is not worth the same as an hour in, in a decade. And so how we allocate our time is the most important decision. Start a habit of investing. Uh, I like that. I I full-heartedly agree with, uh, and I think uh, the problem is sometimes you may not have enough uh, reserve to invest. Totally. Uh, I think, obviously, what you're saying, if you have reserve, invest. I think even more, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't actually matter how much you put aside, right? I had this dilemma when I was younger. I um, started studying finance. I understood the importance of compounding, but like, let's just talk Frank, you know, I wasn't making that much money when I was younger. And so as a percentage of your income, like $200 a month might be a lot for someone who's 19 years old. Okay. The point is that you're doing something and you're just building up a muscle. So the, the dollar amount is actually insignificant. It won't turn into anything meaningful, but you're creating a habit of thinking long-term habit of discipline. It's like going to the gym. You're not going to see anything from one day of going and doing bicep curls. I remember the young guys would spend all their time in front of the bicep curls, you know. And, you know of course. Let me, get, let me get my arms big. You Especially before a date, you know. Of course. Ah, it's it's going to be magic. But, well, right? that's actually your, actually, that is your number seven. Lift four to five times per week with progressive overload. Right, right. It's, it, right, let's zoom out a second. What am I actually saying? I'm saying short-termism is the default. Everyone is short-term. You're likely going to have a short-term mindset when you're young. And it's the hardest thing to do because we're not wired to like really think like long-term and we're not wired to th be thinking rationally. But those are the exact things you need to do if you want to have a successful life. And whatever success means to you, you're going to be happier if you're healthy, you're going to be happier if you can invest for the future. And it's just about using that those early years to build up the muscle. That's the point here. Yeah, that is that is actually a great point. I, I like that. That's almost like a metaphor, frankly. Speaking of lifting, which is obviously a metaphor of just building uh, for the future, you do talk about eat more protein than you did in high school, like over <laughs> 150 grams per day. That hurt my feelings because okay. I do like French fries. Okay. I do like ice cream and dessert. <laughs> I do like same. protein too, though. But tell me about this one. <clears throat> yeah, there's not too much uh, deep into it. Just when I when I learned about you know physical science and uh, how the human body responds to nutrition and and weightlifting, 
if your goal is to add muscle onto your frame and that's what you want to do, you probably will need protein. You'll probably need much more than you were used to getting when you were younger. Uh, everything looked great when you were younger. I mean, I, I couldn't add a single pound of fat when I was in high school, I was playing soccer and I could just eat, you know, McDonald's and French fries and ice cream, whenever I wanted. Uh, you have to be a little bit more, more mindful as you get older. And so and the metabolism slows that. down and it's easy to yeah. gain weight. It's e much easier to gain weight, much harder to lose weight. Correct. So, so number nine and number 10 are really interesting, <clears throat> especially number nine, because, um, it's a little bit philosophical, so I want to reflect on it and just talk about it a little bit. And what you say, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. What does that mean? I think it means just that. You So much of the things that I talk about, and you notice these recurring themes, is about the mind and our mindset and uh, the mentality that we bring into different situations and I've proven this to myself. If you have the right positive affirmations, if you believe you can do something, you can literally bend reality to your will, right? I didn't come from much money. My parents are both lay people. My mother was a teacher. My father was a house painter. Um, yet I've gone to one of the most prestigious schools in the country for graduate school. I've raised tens of millions of dollars. Uh, I've, anything that I've set my mind to, I've accomplished it. I've added on muscle. I've lost weight, whatever. And my point is that you can do anything you want, but you have to be selective because again, you don't have all the time in the world. You have the same 24 hours as Elon Musk does, the same 24 hours as uh, Simone Biles does, the gymnast, Olympic gymnast. And of course, I'm not trying to discount that some people are born with talent, that some people have you know certain physical gifts, uh, but there's certainly people with physical gifts and, and talent that just don't allocate their time correctly don't work hard when they need to work hard on their craft. And maybe that's not for them. That's fine. But whatever you choose that you want to work on, just be really specific, choose that thing, and then just clear all the rest out. And I think a lot, a lot of the guys that I see, guys and girls that are in their 20s, they get they cling on to this idea of optionality, right? It's a lot of people that go to like the really good schools. And then afterwards, you ask them, what are you going to do after? And they say, I want to go to management consulting. And there's nothing wrong with management consulting. But when you dig a little deeper and you say, well, why do you want to go into management consulting? What is it about that that interests you? I don't know. It has good exit options. It has good optionality. They're like, you know, this, op this idea of optionality, of kicking the can down the road, you have to double down at some point. You have to like cash in your chips, you know, and I think that's missing from a lot of young, ambitious and smart young people that I meet. Uh, and so that was the idea of like, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything. You will have to make a choice at some point. That's really interesting, actually. Uh, that got me to think a lot, um, uh, this one, because um, you're right. There are times where uh, we have like our hand in so many things. Um, I think some of it because we we don't know. I, I sense we, we're not sure which one is going to lead us to more success. So we right. worry and we have the optionality. Well, what if my podcast suddenly starts making millions of dollars and Warren Buffett calls me to sponsor the podcast? I'm not going to give up on it. No, I I, I kid. But would I, you do I, the podcast even if he didn't? Right. right. Well, that's so what that, I've been doing the... for four years. No, I, 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 see, I, see, I see what you're saying, but I, I it did get me to think because you do ask people at some point you have to make choices. You can't really yeah. have it all. Um, and then if you do something, whatever you decide to do, don't have asset. 
I am so guilty of this. Do you see a lot of that? uh, I say uh, to myself, I say to myself, you know, like I know again, because I'm real with myself and I'm probably comes out in the writing. I know when I'm half-assing it. I know when I'm not, when I'm kind of dicking around, so to speak. And the times when I'm not is when things actually work to like a really high level. And so there is some people, you know, they had a good upbringing and they had maybe a, a parent that was like always holding them to a high standard. That doesn't really matter. At some point, whether you had that or you didn't, you have to build that for yourself, right? And like you're a doctor, you don't become a doctor unless you held yourself at some point to a high standard. And that has to be like with everything that you do, anything that matters, right? If you want to just take on a hobby of like gardening for fun and you're not a very good gardener and your plants keep dying, whatever. That's that's not what we're talking about here. But things that matter to you, you have to hold yourself to a very high standard. And that's kind of the difference between people that end up seeing success and people that don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, put yourself accountable against what what, what you want to do. A little bit about finance. We go back to finance here and you say, learn how to do financial modeling and start accruing equity and at the same time, travel more, even if it stretches your budget. So um, financial modeling, I mean, I, I, what is that? I mean, I, I, all I know is uh, we should buy high and sell low. No, I'm, I, I'm sorry. No, we buy low and <laughs> sell high. <laughs> I'm probably talking through a frame or a lens of startups. Um, but I don't think it just has to be startups. I think also, you know, if there's real estate, right? There's um, just the public markets, public securities. Um, this idea of you're not going to get wealthy by just always renting out your time. You need something that's working even while you sleep. And so accruing equity, especially for people that don't come from a p- privileged background, is one of the fastest ways to kind of climb the social ladder. Again, if that's important to you. And so my my point there is, if finance is in your language, if you just don't feel comfortable with numbers, well, guess what? That's the way the world works and you need to figure out how to do it. And there's pl- there's no excuse. There's plenty of material online. You can watch YouTube videos about it. You can learn how capitalism works. You can learn how companies are valued, how company stock is traded, and you can find ways to start taking a little bit of that, that pie for yourself in legitimate means, right? Investing or tr- or mm-hmm. working in exchange for equity in a company or starting a company. Um, that's, I think, like so important because the younger people that I meet, a lot of times are just like missing this. So they're all so focused on how much am I getting compensation in cash, right? Yeah. And they might yeah. be missing opportunities for stock, which could, you know, totally change their trajectory of their life and their family's life. Yeah, so important. I, I I agree. I like that. Uh, how about travel? I mean, it does cost a lot of money, but um, I see the value, learning other cultures, other languages, seeing other people. But you do challenge us and you say, I know it's expensive. It could stretch your budget. Still do it. What do we have at the end of our, you know, at the end of our years when we look back, right? It's not the material things. It's not the tchotchkes. It's the experiences and the memories. And so you know, you have to kind of live with that discomfort when you're younger, that the trip is going to be expensive. Maybe it's kind of out of my budget. A lot of the finance people on social media will tell you the opposite. You know, if you can't afford it and you don't have six months of cash in the bank and you don't have X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 don't go on that trip. I totally disagree with that. 
100%, because there will come a point where you can no longer do those same kind of trips that you were able to do in your 20s, right? Like me, myself, at this point, I probably would not go and stay at a hostel. I had a lot of fun staying at hostels when I was in my 20s, but at 30 years old and with a child and I have to carry all of her, you know, her crap, uh, literally sometimes, um, <laughs> I'm not staying in a hostel anymore. And so th this is kind of my point of um, the time is the most important thing. Time is not fungible. You, 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 you will, do, you will you, lose money, you will make money in the future, but yeah. you're not getting that time back. You do have, I've seen, uh, I don't want to misquote, but I've seen, you do go into some financial arguments with folks on Twitter. I, My memory is not going to serve me right, but I did watch from the sidelines a couple of arguments you were having about 401k. And okay. I'm trying to remember, uh, are you from the school of thought to contribute to 401k or not? I think that's a little simplistic to put in those terms. Um, I think you should contribute to your 401k up to your uh, employer match. And that's about it. That's um, about I think it. everything else yeah. you can do in your own IRA. Um, I just don't really see yeah. the benefit of it. I remember th there was discussion about this. Now, you say don't date for a long time. What's a long mm -hmm. time, Tom? So with my the that relationship that went sour, we dated for nine years, uh, married at the ninth year, stayed married for a little bit under 12 months. So all in all, about 10 years with the person. It's way too long to not Is get there married. Is an ideal time? I think, well, so someone asked me this uh, on a different podcast, and the uh, argument I made was actually a, a financial one or like a mathematical one, rather, of there is diminishing returns. So, she, you know, she tried to position this as if the idea is let's get data about the other person, right? I want to court you and go on several dates, and then maybe we move in together. How much time is the right time that the thinking is, okay, all this time I'm collecting data about this person. But there is diminishing returns. I'm not going to learn anything new in year five that I didn't learn in year two, um, unless they're really good at hiding who they are, right? And like they have some serious skeletons in their closet. Is that so, why you say don't ignore red flags? Is that where it's coming from? For sure. I mean, people tell you all the time who they are. We're just not paying attention to it. We don't pay attention to subtle nuances of language, right? I heard this uh, interview with uh, Robert Greene where he talks about the quote from Schopenhauer, where he says, you know, people when you tell them something good about yourself, do they have a split second before they smile and say, congratulations? That split second is like part of their wiring. It's part of their neurology, right? Of They feel envious towards other people. And that's a way to sort of like suss that out. And so these red flags are all around us. We just don't really pay attention to them because body language and subtle signs of body language is a whole language in and of itself. Do you have an example of situation where you retrospects like oh my god i can't believe i missed that red flag and i wish i paid attention so, to obvious obvious ones of like i think maybe i talk about in this thread about get aligned on the big things but i'm a big believer in it whether it's in uh whether you're getting married whether it's a business relationship get aligned on the big things because as human beings we're going to have disagreements right you and i are not going to see eye to eye on everything yeah. but if uh, someone says to you you know i'm not interested in having kids and you've always seen yourself as, maybe you didn't reflect on it deeply, but you've sort of seen yourself as someone that wants children. That's a red flag. That's not yeah. something to kick down the road. You're not going to convince them otherwise. You shouldn't even try to, right? Because everyone needs to live their true sense of life. And so like those tiny little things, uh, you know, another one is uh, if you're willing to lie about the small things, you're going to lie about the big things too. It's okay to have people leave your life. This is the Facebook effect, right? Of 
I'm connected to every single person that I've ever bumped into at every <laughs> party. And now I have to see all their updates. I deleted Facebook in 2017. Just completely deleted I, I my account. I think Facebook, that's by the way. <laughs> good for you. Um, it, that was a weird time growing up in, you know, in our 20 as a millennial. Facebook gets introduced right around the time when I'm in college. Everyone has to have a Facebook. <clears throat> and then as people do in their 20s, you go, you travel, you get some job, you get your first job, you get your second job, you take some time off, you might travel a bit, you go to graduate school, you do all these things that normal people do in their 20s. And each step, new friend, new friend, new friend. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's how human beings have evolved, that we have to know what's happening with every single person we've ever met in our entire life. <laughs> um, I think it's actually counter to like what is the the way that we're kind of evolved um, to grow up as as adults, as human beings. I mean, so, there are, you know, I've, um, so I want to reflect on something because I challenged somebody one time and I, because I'm in a similar thought, school of thought like you, because I see people almost like, you know, telling me all of their lives. I mean, they take selfies in the bathroom. Like I know when they went to the bathroom and they went to, to I don't know, whatever. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> So I challenged one uh, one yeah. person I know, like you know, because I'm not like this. I'm like, what what am I missing? And he said, you know, part of the reason he does that is because he wants to leave memories for his children and his loved ones after he's gone, where they can go back and just kind of relive some of the moments that he lived. You know why I call bullshit? Not on gonna that? lie, I I actually did I did I did pause when I was listening to this. So I call bullshit on it, and I'll tell you why. Tell me. Um, there's something called Google Photos. It does a phenomenal job of storing our photos in the cloud. And for not ins for a very insignificant amount of money, you can buy more cloud storage should you feel that you're, you're running out of it. You can also connect it to your iPhone so that when you snap a picture, it just automatically in the background goes to Google Photos. I love taking photos of my daughter, videos, so we can see how she grew up. She'll have those memories photos of us as a family, photos of things that I, I'm eating at a restaurant with my wife. Do I have to share this with the world? Probably not. And I think that there, you know, and people say to me, well, don't you write on Twitter? Like, aren't, isn't social media your thing? And I think they're just very, very different of, I come onto Twitter every single day thinking about the reader and thinking about the other person and saying, what lesson or wisdom or humor or entertainment can I impart on the other person? If all I'm doing is sharing my really poor photos of my food that I'm eating, it's an egoic need for validation from other people. Speaking of food, steak is eaten medium rare. I can't have it well done. No comment. Oh my God. Tell me about that, that Tom. Tell me about that. You know, my, my father loves well done steak and it drives me absolutely mad. <laughs> um, you know, he's used to doing like uh, barbecues on the beach in Israel. And so... You'd probably get like a thin piece of uh, steak and just throw it on the charcoal. And however it comes out, it comes out. Uh, I'm more of a snob, right? I like the nice one and a half inch thick ribeye or a New York strip cooked exactly to the right temperature. I've perfected it over many years. You cannot convince me otherwise. I've graduated from well done, by the way, hey, to medium well. I mean, I'm getting there. like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm regressing to the mean. I'm getting there. I had a friend who was from Argentina and apparently they eat it rare. Uh, so like his literally came out purple and that was just a bit too much for me. Okay. It's interesting now. Now we talk about um, start publishing your writing. Um, yeah. So before December, 2022, when you make the shift, 
were you considering yourself as a writer or like a selective writer or okay. so um you know you that 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 uh, tweet obviously was in march 2023 so tell yeah. me about start publishing your writing what do you mean by that you know they say like the best time to do anything was 20 years ago the second best time is today um i think there's so much benefit to sharing your thoughts online it kind of leaves these breadcrumbs over time for you you can go back and see how your thinking has evolved for other people you know the, the world is a big place there's 5 billion people on the internet someone out there is either going to be impacted by what you wrote or find it inspirational or decide that they found their kindred spirit. And this is someone that I never would have met ever. It could be someone in Ohio and I live in Massachusetts. It could be someone who lives in India. All of a sudden that person says, this is the same person as me. We think the same, we had the same upbringing. And of course, statistically that's likely to happen, but the internet kind of opens up those doors. And so I think a lot of people are missing out on that because they're afraid to publish their writing. And it's hard. I mean, writing writing is hard. Sharing your writing in public is hard. Um, there's a reason why only 1% of people create and then 99% of people consume. Um, but I think the benefits just outweigh whatever people think the uh, the downsides are. Are you going to write a book? I would like to at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you mean, when you mean by start publishing... You don't necessarily mean you have to write a book. You can publish it in like it a, a blog tweet. or so. It could be a tweet. It can, okay, it can be a tweet, and and potentially uh, could be a book. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of them. These I like, but they're obviously a no-brainer. Getting drunk is stupid, and if any substance has control <laughs> over your, uh, you've lost. But I, I must ask you: Was this just based on observation, or did you unfortunately have a problem uh, with these, and you realize you learned the hard way that this is not a good idea? I don't want to say that I've had like a, an alcohol addiction, um, but I partied too much when I was younger. I've definitely pushed my body past the point where where you should go safely um, several times. And I think like, you know, you you get older and you start to ask yourself, like, what are the trade-offs that I'm making? Is this giving, am I still getting a return for this? And the answer was very clearly no. But then it took me a long time to finally come to grips with the fact of like, I shouldn't even be doing this like on a semi-weekly basis. Like right now I had a year that I took a break from alcohol and it was weird to say to people because then people would think that you're going through Alcoholics Anonymous, but I really just wanted to see, could I take a break from alcohol with all the social gatherings, with everything? During COVID, it was a little bit easier to do that because all of us were here talking on Zoom. Um, but that was a little weird for my wife to tell her, like, I'm not going to have wine with dinner tonight. Today, I've relaxed it a little bit. And I think, you know, you can enjoy it safely. You can have a drink or two. I think I even wrote that. Um, you can enjoy a drink or two at a social gathering or if there's a celebration. Um, but if you ever stop to notice, and if you if you do cut it out, you really notice how much of it is like ingrained in our society of like, we just drink as part of social yeah. gatherings. And I don't think we need it. I think if we're genuinely interested in other human beings, you can have fantastic conversations and really go deep with people uh, if you are willing to kind of be a good listener, have high empathy, and just get over your own like you know fears doubts and insecurities all that internal bullshit absolutely so um you talk about hold yourself to a ridiculously high standard um i think that's um that is um interesting uh, and obviously we agree with this i want to i want to talk about the second one after that number 23 because i couldn't agree with you more and as somebody who's seen a lot of patients with cancer this really, really, really resonated with me. And what you say 
you'll regret the things you didn't do, not the things you did. I can assure you that this is so spot on with every single unfortunate patient I have seen yeah. that was dying. But tell me a little bit about what made you get come to this conclusion. I came across the regrets of the dying when I when I was probably 26 or 27. And it was hard for me to fully grasp at that time because you read it. And if your readers haven't read it, like one of, you know, they've interviewed people who are in hospice care uh, and asked them what regrets they had about life. And maybe I won't remember all five, but some of them were, you know, I worked too much, didn't spend enough time with my friends and family. Um, you know, forget the, the rest are escaping me, but around the idea of like work. Oh, and they regretted the things they didn't do. And conceptually, you can like take that in and say, sure, I, I don't disagree with it. Or maybe I even, I agree with it. Um, but I think there is a little bit of like wisdom that has to come from life to really grasp like what that means. And looking back, I don't regret anything that I've done, but there are regrets of things that I did not do. Um, and so that, you know, I understood it conceptually, I understood it intellectually, but I didn't actually understand it until I've gotten a little bit older. And there's things that I just can never go back and do because that time has passed. Um, yeah. you know, I won't go into them here on this podcast, but, um, but it's so true what you're mentioning. You, you start to realize like I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, I've heard people before, but I don't regret that. Right. That was part of my learning. It was part of the process. There was context around it, uh, whatever it may be. And it's not to make excuses, but it's this idea of like those things we can get over them, but it's really hard to get over like the passing of time. And like, that's it. You cannot go back. You do say your parents did the best they could, but then you say, call your grandparents more uh, uh, versus call your parents. I don't know. So tell me about this. You say, call your grandparents more. <laughs> I, I didn't know where you were going to take this. Um, well, so. I'm trying to think. You said, call your grandparents more. And sure. then you said your parents did the best they could. Um, you know, I, I think we can all do a better job with our families, but I, I feel there are some stories behind these two. There's not, uh, it's not mutually exclusive, like for sure. Call your parents more also, right? Uh, I call my mom fairly often, um, but the grandparents, they're getting older in age, right? And when you're, uh, you know, age yeah. discrepancies can differ, but like when you're in your twenties and the grandparents are in their sixties, you kind of have this idea of like, well, they're going to be around forever. But as you start to get into your forties, right now, grandparents are in their eighties. It's coming close to that time, you know? And like I had lost both my grandparents, um, well, my mother's parents were uh, not alive when I was born. My other two grandparents had a great childhood with them and lost both of them. And you always just think, you know, could I have done one more visit back to the home country to see them? Could I have done one more call? Because um, one day you get that phone call from a family relative and that's it, they're gone. Indeed, that's a somber statement. Um, I think we we all face. What... Um... How do we get around this, Tom? I mean, the, life is busy. Yeah. We're all running around at 700 miles an hour. You're not now by choice, but at some point you were running 700 miles an hour, traveling yeah. the world, raising money, all of this. And and it's, you know, sure, you can pick up the phone and call in these two, three minutes, but it's just not the same. Like, I mean, I think... It's not. You, no. Yeah. So is it just the culture? I mean, I feel sometimes the American culture is just very 
high, strong, busy, corporate, work-oriented. I mean, there's a joke always, Europeans, when they take vacations, they really take vacations. Do you know, have you seen that tweet where it's like, I um, live for my kidney transplant or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, um, the American says, can we reschedule this call? I have, uh, you know, brain surgery or kidney transplant happening, but I can do it right before. The European says, uh, it's the local uh, cheesemaker 750th anniversary in my small village. So I won't be able to do the call till next week. You know, like that, that kind but of it's thing. So true, but isn't that true? I don't, I do think so. Like, I, I always wonder, I mean, I mean, I'm an immigrant to this country, so I really don't Same. know, but so I really want, but I wonder if it was like this all along or we evolved into the current culture. I don't know what the culture was prior to coming here. So, I, you know, I can go back and read history books, but my sense is that like, you know, with industrialization and with, you know, the rise of capitalism, and there's so many good things that have come out of it. Um, but that we do lose ourselves a little bit when all we think about is work, 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 and where we are in that work system. Um, work is super important. It's very, very important for how we see ourselves, the way we contribute to society, but it cannot be everything. Like there has to be a space for recreation. There has to be a space for friends and family, um, for volunteer work, for giving back to the community. Work cannot be 100% of the way that we spend our days. I just think it's it's really unhealthy for society nothing, and for the individual. Nothing feels better than helping others for nothing in return. I love that. I love that. It's one of my favorites. There's I a there's this idea in uh, Judaism, and I'm not religious, but I, I grew up fairly traditional. This idea of like different levels to charity to tzedakah when you give charity to someone, and the highest form, the way they teach it, is when the recipient doesn't know who the sender is and the sender doesn't know who the recipient is. It's like a pure, clean transaction of charity just meant for the intrinsic good of giving charity. It's not, yeah. I'm going to have my name up on this building. It's not, you know, I'm going to get to see the other person smile when I help them out. It's just pure helping without knowing. Probably a level above that is like helping someone be self-sufficient, but um, you sort of get the point. Right. Well, my favorite show I just finished on Netflix is Jewish Matchmakers. I just want to let you know. Uh, oh, I know. I know. So Listen, good. I have my, my, <laughs> that, fri my friends. That, my wife divided. pulls me into like reality junk TV sometimes. And this I always a, kind of judge her from the one. side. This is a good yeah. one. Trust me on that. You're going to like it. Yeah. Um, we talked about get along and the big things. Yeah. Uh, finance again. Don't try to beat the market. I have to tell you, I own NVIDIA. And I was thinking, do I sell NVIDIA? Because somebody's going to take off uh, from the... To give some profit and then I can buy it again. And I'm like, okay, I can't beat the market. I'm just going to keep it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. People should learn how companies are valued and traded 100%. You know, is it yeah. a good idea to probably have a fun account where you can trade? Yeah. Unless it is actually your job yeah. to invest other people's money. I think people would make way too much about beating the market. The market does just fine, right? Like eight to 10% per year over your lifetime it will do just fine. If you're obsessed with beating the market, you know, by all means, go for it, brother. You know, like, yeah. but you're, I think for most lose. people, they just, they, they, they go on social media and they get wrapped up in all the, you know, there's so many different financial gurus telling you to do this, do that, learn how this company's doing. This company's just popped. You know, you just lost out, you know, you're not going to make it, you know, have fun staying poor. All the, all these things that get people to self-doubt when you could just really keep it simple. Uh, I think Bogle did a really huge service to the financial community when he said, Look, most people are not beating index funds. Just go into index funds, dollar cost average, 
and do that for a long time. It's really boring and it works. Yeah. It is boring though. I mean, you know, it is like, we get that, like, uh, you know, triumph. Oh, I own this and it went up. Right. What is the barbell strategy? This is, uh, you know, one of I, I like Nassim Talib a lot. He's been on this show, so it's been yep. always wonderful to to have him. But uh, what do you mean by it? it he influenced uh, this greatly, and I, I read all his books during uh, the pandemic. I never heard of Nassim Talib uh, before the pandemic, but I suddenly had all this time and started reading his books, and it was just like page after page. I'm like, oh my god, I I totally get him, and he gets me, and it, those books just clicked. Right. And this idea of not just with with stocks and with investments, with everything, how much we spend in the mediocre middle, right? He calls it mediocristan, um, when really we'd be better served either going extreme conservative, extreme speculative, uh, and using that as the strategy. And I just think like it clicks so much more with the way my brain works. And that's what I've done, right? With like startup equity, which is illiquid. Who knows if it'll ever turn into something. Um, but as it starts to accrue and as it starts to gain in value, it's uncapped upside, whereas the downside was pretty much capped, right? I could understand what my downside was. Remember people's names. So spot on. This is this is this is really important. This will and save then, you when you go to different fancy functions, you go to cocktail absolutely. parties, right? People are not paying attention. This is what I talk about body language, the little subtle nuances. How many times do we remember even like what color eyes someone had? Not often. Not often, right? No. Names, even more, right? The, yeah. the, the Every person's favorite word is their own name. <laughs> so if anyone takes anything out of this, like don't listen to anything else I'm saying. Remember that one thing. Wow, that's, 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 that's interesting. And then be a connector and avoid bad-mouthing other people. Good rules for life, right? Like it is good rules. You know, I think that um, sometimes you never know if you're bad mouthing somebody to somebody. You never know if it's going to come back. So, I mean, well, what does it signal say, to the? What does it signal to the other person, whether consciously you, or subconsciously? You could bad bad mouthing him to the other person. I mean, absolutely correct. Right. But uh, the, the connect the connector thing is. I just want your audience to think about this. This is the idea of like you're putting coins right into the machine for later and it's the long term thinking right i don't need anything today from anybody right i have this like this mindset of i'm good with who i am and i'm just connecting people for the the sake of connecting people but in the back of my head i know the universe will bring this around back to me and that's how it works you shouldn't do it to be transactional but it's a good like long term way of thinking of like social capital of just help other people out stop always thinking about yourself and what's going to benefit you. It will come back around to you. What about this watch sports, moderately or not at all? Are you talking about folks who are obsessed with like, you know, ESPN or something? I got I got killed for that one. Um, yeah, I mean, like you've lost all of these people. Like what's going on there? Well, that, that's fine. I'm willing to lose those people. Um, <laughs> I spend way too much time worrying about my hometown sports teams. And, you know, you're like, I could have spent that time calling grandma and grandpa instead of worrying about the sports team. So you just think like it's like a waste of time? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I want to finish with the um, uh, last one, which is really very intriguing. Uh, nobody cares. We're all wrapped up in our own bullshit. We only care about ourselves. And it's actually very freeing once you realize that because it allows you to sort of um, understand where people are coming from 
and how to operate in this this game that we call life, this game that we call you know the world that we live in. Um, but we hope somebody cares, though, Tom. I mean, like, I, like, look, I, I tend to agree with you that most people don't care. It, I don't mean it in a negative sense. I don't mean it in like a uh, nihilistic, you know, the world is doomed. No one cares about you. You should go cry in a corner. It, what I mean by it is that you have an opportunity to really stand out in a crowd, whether it's in social circles, whether it's in business, whatever it is, in writing, right? If you want to be a writer, you can choose, like everyone else, to focus on the self and just be wrapped up in your problems, your you know your dilemmas, your issues, blah blah blah, or focused on the other person, the reader, the customer. Right? If you're in business, you want to be focused on the customer, not focus on yourself as the business owner. It's all these like small things that I start to notice in life where the benefits accrue to the people that understand that everybody is self-absorbed. Everyone has their own problems at home. Everyone has their own insecurities and doubts. Everyone has that, you know, uh, that thought of what am I going to eat for dinner later tonight? You're asking a lot from other people to really care and be invested in you when you can help kind of like bring that bridge over to them by caring about them. Are you sure you're 38 years old? Because I honestly, uh, look, I mean, I, I, I say this as, as, a, as a compliment because really you, you have a lot of these things, these ideas where um, they're, 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 they're great but it usually they don't they happen from life experiences that take a little bit longer time so i think um i think you've uh you've caught on to the lots of philosophical uh, approaches to life early on in life and hopefully that will serve you moving forward i appreciate that i, I think i would also chalk it up to reading a lot um i yeah. try to read a lot of books i'm not interested in speed reading i like to sit down and take my time it's part of the benefits of being an introvert is I don't always feel like I have to be in a social circle. I much would rather be in front of a fireplace with a good book and everyone leaving me alone. Um, and there's this so quote five years really from now, quick, this, yeah, this idea, there's this quote, this idea of like, for people that don't read books, I forget who said it, but he said like, you're functionally illiterate basically. Yeah, absolutely. You, you haven't developed that. Like you get to experience the world through the wisdom of other people. And it's all just sitting there in a library for you. Five years from now, where Tom Harari will be. Although I, I know I'd... I'm going to stay in touch with you a lot more, but uh, where, where, where do you think you're going to be? I, I would hope that I don't know the answer to that. And I don't mean that to be cheeky. It's just, I think that life is so interesting when you just let it happen, right? Sure, you should have goals 100%. I'm not saying not to have goals, but I, you know, in going back to Taleb, this idea of like, should you be strategic or should you be opportunistic? I'm way more in the opportunistic camp. I want to keep my eyes open always for interesting opportunities. I want to keep my heart open for interesting relationships. I think if you try to prescript too much how your life is going to go, you're missing out on a lot of that serendipity and that opportunism uh, that can come up, which how do, how do you get interesting opportunities in life? You have to first be able to spot them. And I think if you're too focused on a specific path, you're choosing to have tunnel vision and like close yourself off from seeing some of those other opportunities. I'll be calling you about my idea once I have it crystallized very soon. Let's do it, Tom Harari. Thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Pleasure, I think Johnny. we went through all of the rules and all of the lessons you've learned, and uh, I am um, really very thankful and grateful that you came on the show. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Charlie.
All right. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being on the show. Special thanks to Tom Harari for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. It is a true honor and privilege to have you on the show. And I know that I'm going to have you again. And I know that we are going to be doing a lot of work together in the future. Tom Harari, in my opinion, is one of a kind, and I'm very happy to have him on the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and let us know what you think about the show. Propose any ideas or thoughts. Don't forget to refer your friends and colleagues to the show. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. Until next time, take care.